Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is somebody I admire and appreciate very deeply. Noah Levine is a gifted teacher of Buddhism and meditation. His book, Dharma Punks, published in 2003, is an engrossing and relentlessly honest and very funny memoir of addiction and recovery told from a unique punk perspective. Today, we discuss Noah's creative process, what it means for him to be a writer, to be a teacher, to look back on a personal story that he wrote years ago, and whether that applies to the Noah that exists right now. We also discuss what it means to grapple with the ego, to engage in the modern world as a leader without succumbing to the pains associated with the self. I think that you'll find his answers very engaging and very enlightening. If you don't know about Noah Levine, you should. The time is now. So with no further ado, here's my conversation at the Esalen Institute with Noah Levine. Noah Levine, welcome to Voices of Esalen. Happy to do it. I wanted to be, begin by thanking you for, um, for bringing me along in my Esalen trajectory. You were actually my first work scholar teacher. And it's, it's kind of an interesting story because I was at home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina in 2009, and I was working on a book, actually a memoir. And uh, at the time, I was reading a bunch of memoirs. And a friend of mine who worked somehow in the juvenile justice system uh, had come across your, your memoir. He was interested in meditation, too, and he said, you should read Dharma Punks by Noah Levine. I headed to the public library in Chapel Hill and I checked out Dharma Punks. I read it in the fall of 2009 and really connected to it, really loved it and felt um, quite connected to your, uh, your story and your creative self. And I think that what happened, if memory serves me right, I uh, got on the web and I searched Noah Levine and it said you'll be teaching at the Esalen Institute in several months and I signed up the, ne the next day to come here. That's so cool, because I remember meeting you, but I didn't totally remember that you found Esalen um, through kind of reading my book, and so I, I'm glad to put that together. Mm. Yeah. I guess I want to start off today's interview by asking you a bit about the creative process and, and writing. I know that uh, recently you embarked upon, I think it was, it was the 10 year anniversary of, of Dharma punks and you created an audio version of your book. Yeah. The, um, the audio version happened. It wasn't the 10 year. It was more, you know, cause the book's been out for 13, almost 14 years now. Um, so it wasn't, it was just that finally, I think that uh, I think that what happened was there was a, a, a audio book producer who kind of looked at the books and said, we want to do uh, Refuge Recovery in the new book, my newest book, which was selling very well. And so they said, we want to do this and let's look at his catalog. And oh, Dharma Punks has done very well. So let's do these two books. Mm. And um, and so then they, they asked me to do it. Yeah. So what was it like to go back to Dharma Punks, a book that you've written 13, 14 years oh, ago? Yeah, yeah. And speak it and, and re-experience the, the you that was. It was uh, many things. It was a bit emotional, you know, to revisit 
uh, some of the stories that's not always so fresh around some of the suffering of my childhood and the losses, the deaths, all of the things that take place in my life and, and are chronicled in the book. So there was times in reading it where I was getting choked up and I couldn't kind of get the full sentence out and... Um, which was my experience in writing Dharma Punks also, is that it was very cathartic and emotional to kind of put this life's experience down on paper. Um, and then the other thing was, is that my, um, you know, I wrote that book 15 years ago and had no writing experience and, you know, just like sat down and wrote a book. And then I got an editor and they helped me and everything. But then coming back now, having written several books and looking and being like, oh, this writing's not that good. <laughs> And doing my own sort of editing of like, I could write this story in such a better way now of looking at how repetitive I am in parts and how, you know, uh, so that sort of internal editor, which as a writer, I don't suffer from that much. I know some writers get that perfectionist kind of, it has to be perfect. I kind of, um, and you know this about me, Sam, is that I didn't actually aspire to be a writer. I was teaching meditation and it made sense to me that my story of how I became a meditation teacher and all of the other books about Buddhism and how to apply Buddhism, they're, they're teaching tools. I'm not a writer that happens to teach meditation. I'm a meditation teacher that writes also about kind of the teachings. Mm. Um, but I don't suffer so much about like it needing it to be perfect or the sort of writing technique or... Uh, any of that, but when I look, but I, but I also like you. I read a lot of memoirs, and I, you know, I, I love to read. And I have learned about writing and good writing over the years. And uh, when you know, when I was reading Dharma Punks, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm glad so much because to this day, people are like, that's my favorite book. All of these people, I love that book so much. And I look at it and be like, well, it, yes, it's a good story, but it's not that well written. <laughs> In my, you know, from my critical mind of like, you know, it's got a rough, right? It's got a sort of like I was in my 20s and just throwing it out there. Here's here's my experience. How old were you when you wrote it? I was in my late 20s. Yeah, probably just turning 30, you know, kind of when it was kind of being finished and, and going out there. Um, yeah, 15 years ago. Well, for listeners of this podcast who haven't read Dharma Punks but know the work of Noah Levine, it's a must read. I wanted to ask you if you would be open to reading a selection from it. Sure, I'm happy to. So, um, context for this is I guess I'm 15 years old, um, alcoholic re rebel in uh, Santa Cruz, California. Here goes. Inside the station, they hogtied us because Toby and Johnny wouldn't stop spitting at them. They had our hands and our feet cuffed together, so we were face down on our stomachs. Toby's pants were around his knees, and there was blood on his shirt. I didn't know if it was from the fight with the jocks or from the beating he had received from the cops for pissing in the van. I was the only minor. Toby and Bubbles had just turned 18, and Johnny was 20. They pulled me out of the holding cell at the boardwalk and sent me up to Juvenile Hall. Staring out of the window of the cop car as we drove through the beach flats and then downtown, I saw the bench at the corner of Pacific and Chestnut and wondered if any of the punks noticed me in the back of the car. If they did, would they have really cared? Leaving town, we headed up Graham Hill Road to the Juvenile Detention Center 
It was an all too familiar experience, handcuffed in the back of a cop car again. Outside, the trees looked cold and lonely. I wish I were lost in those woods rather than on my way back to jail. I had been in and out of that place for years. I came up there every other week to see my probation officer. A few weeks earlier, I'd gotten a dirty piss test for cocaine, and my PO said I'd have to do some time if, were, if it were ever to happen again. I had made up a stupid story about someone who had passed me a cigarette with coke in it at a party. She was pretty cool, but I couldn't seem to stay out of trouble, and her hands were tied. She had let me off a million times, but this time I knew I was going down. Assault and battery, or assault with a deadly weapon, plus, if they threw in a drunken public, or an intoxicated minor charge, not to mention it was a violation of my probation to have even been with Toby and Johnny, and I was sure they would find my bag of weed when I got strip-searched. I'd probably have to do a few months. In the hall, everyone knew me. Tim looked disappointed to see me again, but was very friendly. He had worked there for a long time, seen me come and go. He was probably in his early 30s, thin, short blonde hair and wire rim glasses. Nice guy for a cop. Well, he wasn't really a cop, but he might as well have been. He held the keys that kept me locked in a cell. I was fucking starving, and he got me some leftover cheese sandwiches and a carton of milk. Tim knew who my dad was and told me he had read some of his books, so he was perplexed about why I was so fucked up when my father was such a wonderful spiritual teacher. Another woman named Jennifer, who worked there, was also a fan of my dear old dad. I thought they might be a couple, but they would never tell me. I didn't even know what my dad's books were about. I had never even read one. Some hippie shit about being nice and passive, I figured. Meditation and all that boring crap. Not for me. Everyone knows that the hippies failed. A bunch of drugged out, dirty rich kids talking about peace and love. No fucking way. The only thing that was going to make a real change was to abolish government. Anarchy was the only solution. It was too late for peaceful protest. We had to fight the oppressors and the brain-dead followers of the dictates set up by the capitalist system. I got so mad thinking about all of this and how I was there for standing up against a bully, fighting against the oppressor, caught up in the system. Do you use the... <laughs> What's it like to read that, it? That's some teenage angst right there. <laughs> Do you use the, the book as a tool for self-reflection in terms of measuring change? Um, I don't tend to. You know, it wasn't until I um, recorded the audio version last year that I had really revisited the book. You know, I hadn't really looked back at, at it much. So, uh, but, but as I did that and as I reread it and, and kind of reading this... It is interesting to see how much of that has changed, how much of those ideas and views have remained, but have, I have a different relationship to them. And so it, it could be used as that, although I don't tend to, you know, okay. yeah. in, I don't tend to intentionally kind of go back and read my material and reflect on it. Yeah. 
I mean, it's the weird thing about writing a book, right? Is that you you write a book and it's a snapshot of your views and your understanding from that period of your life. And then five years later, your views and experience has changed. And 10 years later, your views and experiences have changed. And I guess that's why people keep writing books. <laughs> because, you know, what I used to think, I now know. Right. Well, you've written, you've written four now. Yeah. And Dharma Punks is probably the most personal. For sure. Yeah, the only really personal. Although Against the Stream and Heart of the Revo- Revolution are a bit personal of how I've actually used Buddhism in my own healing and recovering and awakening. So... But it's not as much my story. It's here's what the Buddha taught. Here's how I've interacted with it. And here's how you can use it. And here's the implications for, you know, social justice or creating a change in the world, not just from the inside, but also socially, politically. Mm. Are, you, are you tempted to write again? Is this writing a thing fulfilling? Um, I, you know, for the first time this year, so every time I, you know, I finished Dharma Pugs, I was motivated. I was like, okay, now I got to do a teaching book. And I wrote a proposal and I sold it. And then I had a book contract. And then that was finished. And I was like, okay, now I've done the overview against the stream, Buddhism as rebellion. Now I got to do a more in-depth loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness book. And I was motivated. And I wrote the proposal and I started the, got the book contract. And then after that, I was like, okay, now it's time to do the recovery book. I really, you know, so everyone, like I felt motivated. Now that Refuge Recovery is out there, um, I actually don't, right now, I don't feel like I have another, I don't feel motivated. I don't feel like, oh, there's something else that I need to say. For the most part, I feel like I've said what I wanted to say so far. Uh, There are some sort of ideas um, percolating. And I've been really enjoying not writing. Uh, writing is like always having homework. You know, it's like being in graduate school or something where you always have this dissertation that you're supposed to be working on no matter what you're doing. Especially for me because I'm a counselor and I'm a teacher and I travel a lot. And so it's like I have to find time for writing. It's not my job. It's an extra thing on top of how I make a living. (laughs) You know, I don't make a living from writing. Um, So... Uh, I'm really enjoying not writing right now. And there's a few things like, um, for a long time, and this might be one of your questions, but, uh, uh, for a long time, people said like, where's Dharma punks? What's the next part? You know, that ended in 2000, you know? Uh, and so it's been seven, 16 years. Like what, what tell us about what it's been like. And I haven't felt like I've had much to say about it because it's uh, I wrote a boring memoir of like and then my life got better and then it got better and then it got better and then it got you know there's no drama there's not enough suffering in it for it to really kind of have the uh, ingredients for an interesting story it's just kind of like yeah I kept meditating and I stopped suffering so much and I had a family and like all of this beautiful this year I thought about because it's actually the 20 year or last year was the 20-year anniversary of the story of um, that's chronicled in Dharma Punks of going to India for the first time in 1995. So last year was the 20-year anniversary. And, um, and then me and Vinny and Micah and also our friend Joe went back to India last year to kind of do a 20-year trip, 20-year reunion trip. 
And I thought, oh, that would be actually an interesting story to write down. You know, there's just our adventures and these three friends that have been friends for 30 years uh, going back to India and having that adventure together. And I, because I like that sort of travel writing and, um, you know, the conflict that we have resolved and the conflict that we haven't resolved and the dynamics that continue to arise, even with these friends that have been meditating together for 30 years and we all have our own families now and everything. But then being on the dudes trip together and, you know, watching the power dynamics of who decides what. And so I thought there was some kind of interesting uh, pieces there to maybe write about. And and also, like, that came on the heels of my divorce, got, getting divorced last year, and it was right after my father's death. And so there was all of this kind of, like, big changes in my life and then being back in, you know, this place that was transformative for me 20 years ago and looking at my relationship to Hinduism and Buddhism and Sufism and all the places that when I went in my 20s and I was like you know, awestruck. And this was like, these temples were amazing. And who's the next guru we're going to check out? And what a totally different relationship I have 20 years later of like, I'm not that interested in the temples. I'm not that interested in the gurus. I'm not that interested in any of it, really, because I found a path. And, you know, and I know the instructions and my practice is to continue to apply them, not to look outside of me to the next temple or the next guru or the next kind of bright shiny thing to sort of reveal something because I found uh, Buddhism and have been walking that path for decades and I feel totally satisfied in it you know so it's much different there's not that seeking yeah you know I remember the first time I went to India I was like so embarrassed to be a tourist and I wanted to be a pilgrim I didn't want to just be another American, you know, tourist. I wanted to be like, I'm here on a quest. I'm here on spiritual, you know, pilgrimage. I'm going to meet the Dalai Lama, you know, <laughs> like. Now and you're now, totally fine. And now I go, yeah, I'm going to go like, I'm totally a tourist and I'm happy to go like, yeah, boat trip. Totally. Take me on a boat trip. <laughs> <laughs> we, cha- we change. Yeah, totally. We change. Totally different perspective on it. I wanted to ask you. And I hope that I can phrase this in a way that I can actually ask the question which I'm interested in. It's something that I spoke with you a bit about a couple of weeks ago when I asked you to do this interview. But um, you're a charismatic individual and a teacher. Um, and there is, as I understand in Buddhism, um, a kind of quest to move away from the ego, right? And move away from my story and myself and... I sort of, because you've been my teacher, I sort of am interested in the way that you find an effective middle ground. Because it seems to me that you, you play a little bit with um, persona, having been, you know, you, you're heavily tattooed and your fashion has toned down a little bit in the last couple of years. But before it had sort of a extremely unique uh, take, <laughs> take on it, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. And, and Maybe so, aggressive even. I mean, cool, I think, but not blank, not sort of yeah. Um, uh, blend in. Yeah, I'm not wearing um, North Face and Patagonia. No. <laughs> no, not at all. And, yeah. and, and my question to you is, how have you managed to, to work out a space where you're Noah and you're the kind of fun person that you want to be existing in this world, but not, um, not suffering? the the kind of pains of the ego. Right. 
Well, I've reflected on this a lot, of course, and because it's a constant practice. Uh, and I, part, part of it for me is like, I just feel so grateful that whatever attention I do get, pers you know, fame, persona, attention, it's always in the role of reminding myself and others about not taking the ego personally. And so uh, certainly it's not that I don't have an ego or have inflation around it or have a, a sense of self and a sense of fashion and a sense of cultural identification and all of these things. But in Buddhism, um, it's not like don't have those. It's just, like, just don't wear them too tightly. Wear uh, the self like a loose garment. Some you know, some teachers might say where it's like, yes, I'm a punk rocker. I'm covered in tattoos. I ride Harley Davidsons. I smoke Cuban cigars. Whatever, like all of that, like indulgence and sort of subculture that I come from and continue to participate in. Um, is all true, but I don't, it's uh, like, it's a loosely, I feel like um, uh, that, that cultural stuff is a, like as true as our gender. Like on one level, totally male in this lifetime. But I also understand reincarnation and that male is not what my karmic momentum always has been or always will be. It's a temporary uh, identity here and now. But in the long run, I, I'm not a man, you know, I'm an unfolding process that is having the experience of, of a male, white, straight, male, American body in this temporary period of time. It's not who I am. On the relative level, have to take full responsibility for it. On the ultimate level, kind of hold it loosely as, and it's not completely who I am. That's not our full identity. I feel like the same thing with like being a recovering addict. I, you know, I have addiction in my past and I continue to say, you know, I'm a recovering addict and I'm, addict is not my identity. It is what I've experienced, but it's not who I am. Uh, likewise with, you know, all of my image and attitude and, and even my personality. And I have like this, I have this t uh, ability, this big personality and extroverted and all of that stuff too. Um, but it's not, it's not ultimately who I am. Right, that there, I understand that there is not a separate, continuous, permanent self in all of this. And I also feel like, and um, you know, there's this experience, this human experience of ego. And sometimes spiritual teachings talk about egolessness, as though we're going to completely remove the sense of self or the ego self. Uh, my own experience is, I don't actually think that that happens. I think that what happens is that it's just a natural part of the human brain, this sense of ego. And that with the right kind of attention, it gets inflated. And with the, <laughs> with the other right kind of attention, it gets deflated. And that our practice in mindfulness and in Dhamma is to see it clearly and relate to, oh, inflation. Oh, all of this, all of this attention is inflating the sense of importance or power or security or whatever. And that is also delusion. Oh, and I'm being criticized. Oh, and that's, my, you know, there's a part of my mind that doesn't like that. Okay, it's being deflated. And also, then that's also not true, right? And so being uh, free from, the Buddha talks about it as vanity. And so it's not the absence of ego. It's the belief of I am this ego. I am this image or I am this 
cultural, you know, you know, sect that I identify with. So holding it loosely, seeing the inflation, deflation. You know, one of the things that's been important for me is uh, the willingness to walk away from uh, communities. You know, like I set up this big community in San Francisco. I was getting all of this attention and my ego liked it and everything. Uh, but there was a, a sense that actually I don't want to live in San Francisco anymore. So I just like moved to New York without really knowing anybody in New York. And, um, and then, you know, set up you know, teaching. I'm going to teach wherever I go. I feel like it's really my uh, calling to do that. And then got all of that attention and built this big community in New York. And said, okay, I'm going to move to L.A. And then just moved, and not really having much connection in L.A. And just moved to L.A. But that willingness to walk away from the Sangha. And I feel like the Buddha was constantly doing that. When people got too attached to him, even his students, he didn't stay and say like, okay, everybody just worship me. He'd be like, okay, you guys know how to meditate now? You're on your own. And he would just walk away, you know, and just kind of go to some other community. And so I try to do that some too, to, to um, not get too dependent. Yeah. You see teachers that get dependent on their students. Sure. They get addicted to the attention that have to be the guru, that have to be the... Uh, and my sense is that that doesn't... I don't I do that much. I'm actually quite happy to not be in the role and to be sitting in the lodge at Esalen playing poker with the staff here and not being the teacher, you know, and, and being kind of in, you know, out with my hooligan friends at the punk show or at the... and not being in that I'm the teacher role all of the time. Although I do see everything that I'm doing as an opportunity for mindfulness and for watching the inflation and deflation of the mind and trying not to take it so personally so for the most part do you feel that you you don't really suffer the the pains of the ego you don't suffer from something that's that's been problematic for me is comparison right so it's like oh he's doing so well and i'm doing okay you know i don't so I suffer about it very little. I wouldn't. I you know I don't know if I want to go bold as to say not at all. But I suffer about it very little. It might be different if I wasn't getting all of the attention and success and growing communities and saying I'm going to start this and it going and I'm going to start recovery thing and it go. You know, if everything wasn't sort of like unfolding in a good way, uh, it might be different. You know, my mind might react differently. There might be more jealousy, more comparing more suffering around it but because um i committed my life to the dharma and to service and like it's been responded to in a really well in you know in a really beautiful way i don't have much to feel uh jealous of really you know in my experience you know like i can look at my teachers and be like hey they built these like 20 million dollar retreat centers um when they were my age but I don't have that aspiration as much, you know? Like, I feel like, well, that might happen in my lifetime. Uh, but that's like, the retreat center's already there. I don't need to build another Esalen. Esalen's already here, and I get to come here, and it's what a beautiful thing, <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> so, I don't, um, I, I feel fortunate that my mind doesn't attack a lot with that kind of comparing. Yeah, and do you think that's something that you're, you're born with, or it's something that you've kind of learned through the teachings? I, I posed this a similar question to Michael Murphy, the, yeah. the, the founder, yeah. because it was a heady time in the mid-60s when Esalen started to become famous. And 
he never, he doesn't strike me as a person with a large or hungry ego. And congenitally, it didn't seem to be an issue for him to, to want that. Well, one of the ways that I would look at this is, uh, in Buddhism, we talk about different personality types. And that I would be a craving or a greed personality type. That I have a lot of ambition, I have a lot of desire, I have a lot of lust, I have a lot of like wanting, wanting mind. But the flip side of that is that there is all of this confidence. And, uh, and I think maybe also some of the white male American is also an entitlement. So I feel like I want to help people. I want to awaken myself. I want to serve. I want to build spiritual communities. And I also feel confident in doing it and have kind of taken all of the risks necessary to you know, train other teachers and, you know, uh, open meditation centers and start a treatment center and all of these things. Um, and part of it's out of like this, you know, greed personality type. Like I want to do a lot. And it's not material stuff that's so important to me. My greed is more about creating a positive change. But there's a lot of ambition around like, hey, we have, we can change this world from the inside out. And there's all of this confidence that goes along with, like, we can do that. And, and I know some of that is the white male privileged conditioning of our culture that, uh, you know, I grew up with, even though I've been in sort of denial of my place in the world as a white male and kind of so identified as other and as punk rocker and as anarchist and as against the white male patriarchal society that we live in. The truth is that's the body I live in. You know, no matter how many tattoos I cover my body, in, <laughs> no matter how much I try to be colorful, I'm still a white guy, you know, and, um, and, and I have that conditioning of, you know, and some of it is, is that uh, entitlement. But it's also been used to create some really cool things. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about uh, refuge recovery. uh, I don't think it's something that everybody uh, knows about. It seems like such a worthy project. So if you could just speak about it for a bit. So I'm a recovering addict for, um, you know, abstinent in recovery for over 28 years. And when I found recovery, there was only the 12 steps, you know, and I needed recovery. And I started getting sense of the 12 steps really young. And the, um, and the 12 steps were, there was cool people there and people like me that had suffered and that were trying to recover and were supporting each other. And I appreciated the community. And at the same time, I started practicing Buddhism and meditating and doing mindfulness. And, you know, just after that story I read from Dharma Punks where I'm in juvenile hall and I start meditating and and I found in Buddhism a practice and a philosophy that totally resonated with me. But the Buddhist people were like my dad's friends. You know, they were like the old Esalen hippie people. And I wasn't, you know, and I'm this young, angry punk rocker. And meditation I knew was going to save my life. But I didn't, I wasn't going to find my sangha, my community in Buddhism. It didn't feel like it. And then in recovery, I felt like, oh, no, these are my people. This is my, you know, these are the degenerate alcoholic drug addicts like myself who are now committed to applying a spiritual solution to recovering. But the um, philosophy of the 12 steps is so Judeo-Christian. It's so theistic and external higher power and powerlessness and defects of character. And only God can restore you to sanity is the kind of foundation of it. 
So it never really resonated that Judeo-Christian theistic philosophy, but Buddhist philosophy and practice totally resonated. So I spent the first 15 years of my recovery in this dual Buddhist view, 12-step community. But then as I started teaching Buddhism, more and more, and, and Dharma punks, because it really is a recovery memoir about my addiction and recovery, uh, so many people started coming to my groups and into our community that were in recovery. So it became this sort of Buddhist recovery community. Not intentionally, because I never, in the beginning, I didn't want to exclude non-addicts. I didn't want to say this is only for addicts. I want to say everyone's welcome. But it, it organically became a lot of rec- like 50-50 recovery, recovering addicts, not recovering. So maybe 10 years ago or so, uh, I realized that it was kind of nobody else was stepping up. Some people had done some cool books on uh, like Kevin Griffin and um, other people had done some interesting books on here's a Buddhist way to understand the 12 steps mm-hmm. and making that kind of bridge of here's a Buddhist way to understand God or higher power or powerlessness. or And I did a little bit of that work in the late 90s. I did some kind of Buddhist 12-step work. And then I just felt like, uh, I don't need to translate how to understand Christian worldview or theistic worldview through this Buddhist non-theistic. Actually, Buddhist non-theistic worldview works perfectly for me and millions of other Buddhists around the world. Uh, And we don't have to channel everything through our Western Judeo-Christian conditioning. So I started to create, uh, I said, I'm going to, you know, step up and make Buddhism as the path to recovery, not a Buddhist perspective on theism, a non-theistic path. And so I created Refuge Recovery and tested it and created it with a group of people and had meetings in our places in San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York and um, in in my kind of core communities. And then the book came out about two and a half years ago. And there was only, you know, it came out in um, 14. And there was only uh, maybe 10 Buddhist recovery meetings in, in this form, what we call refuge recovery at that time. And really quickly, because the book has, here's the four, no, four noble truths of Buddhism, uh, the Eightfold Path, and this is the core treatment and, you know, path to recovery from Buddhism. Looking at the first truth is that um, suffering, uh, addiction is suffering. And the second uh, truth is looking at how that repetitive craving for pleasure that all of us have, our survival instinct, uh, is the cause of addiction, but there's something that sets apart normal craving from the non-addict to the intense craving of the addict and an inventory and investigation of looking at, is it trauma? Is it attachment? Is, what is it that's um, you know, fueling that? Can we identify it? Some people can, some people can't. The third noble truth saying enlightenment's possible and for recovery is saying recovery is possible. We can do this. We can heal. We can recover. And the fourth being the Eightfold Path. So putting that out there and in the book, in the Refuge Recovery book, putting out here's how to start a meeting. Here's how meetings are peer-led. And here's guided meditations that can be shared as a script in every single meeting, donation-based, and really creating a nonprofit organization and putting the book out there. 
And within the first year, there was 100 refuge recovery meetings. Now there's like 250 going on 300 refuge recovery meetings. And in Europe and in Mexico and in Canada. And, you know, it's like happening all over the world where people are saying, yeah, we want to meditate as part of our recovery, and we want a non-theistic perspective, and we, we you know, and we're, we're many of people who are already interested in Buddhism, and many people who are just disinterested in Christian philosophy-based, you know, spirituality. Um, and they're saying like, well, uh, Buddhism seems a little bit more palatable than you know theism, so. So it's happening, you know, and, and in service of that, I felt like, oh, I better also create a treatment center because people are going to read this, want to do this in their treatment, and nobody's going to actually know how to really do it, right? Because it's just, you know, there's not that many professionals that are going to be really trained in this modality. So in Los Angeles, I got my friends together to give me all of their money to invest in creating a, a treatment center so that we could actually open up with, you know, a psychiatrist and psychologists and case managers and social workers and psychotherapists and, you know, to have a really professional base and a whole bunch of meditation teachers to guide people through detox, through residential, through sober living, and to create a full Buddhist-based program. And so I did that about two years ago, just after the book came out, right around when the time the book was coming out. Where is your facility? And so we have a facility in Hollywood and Silver Lake and um, about 30 bed, you know, facility that's going and is um, very successful. And I think, uh, you know, it's hard to it's, it's hard to claim success rates, you know, on, on, in addiction recovery. But you know, I, I'm confident that what, what Refuge Recovery offers I, here's here's the thing. I sort of feel like if, if somebody's really done and really ready, anything will work <laughs> um, on some level. Like for me, like I got sober in the 12 steps, even though it wasn't really the right philosophy for me, but it worked for me because I was desperate. Uh, but what we're finding is that we get a lot of people who have rejected the 12 steps coming to refuge and saying, okay, finally something I can believe and experience and, and mindfulness that I can actually apply. And so I think we're being, you know, greatly successful at it. And a lot of addicts relapse, you know, that there's, that's just the tragic reality of it. it's, it's uh, brutal um, to really get and maintain long-term abstinence. Mm -hmm. Well, it must be really gratifying to, to have an idea like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm, I imagine the light bulb must have went on over your head, like, I have to do this. Yeah, so... Yeah, and like I said, like with the books, like that was just like organic, passionate. This makes sense to do, um, and so far, kind of, I'm and I feel really committed for this next period of my life to really just dedicate to refuge. You know, I'll, I'll always teach Buddhism for anybody who's interested, but I feel really more um, passionate right now to making it available to recovering addicts. Hmm. All right. Well, I just have a couple more questions. I know you got to get back to Hazel and Stevie Ray. It was, it was cute when I saw Hazel when she came in. the The first couple of days, she had a temporary neck tattoo, and I thought to myself, "There's probably very few girls right. who are eight or however old she is with the temporary neck tattoo." Yeah, my kids don't just put tattoos on their arms; they go right for the face and neck. Like, I'm gonna have neck tattoos like my dad. <laughs> I, I was. I was speaking with somebody at, at lunch today, and I said, I'm going to interview Noah Levine in about 20 minutes. You know, would you have any questions for him? And someone said, how old, uh, would, how old would his kid have to be before he let them get a tattoo? So I have to ask that to you. 
Well, the law is 18, you know, so I, I'll probably make my kids wait until they're 18. Um, I don't know. I could probably see a scenario where my kids were in their late teens, 16, 17, and really wanting to get tattooed, and I might let them get a little tattoo if that's... Uh, but probably make them wait till they're 18. Sounds reasonable. Yeah, that's the, then it's their choice. Okay, I have a little speed round. Let's see what I can think of for you. Well, first, why do you keep coming back to Esalen? What brings you back here? So many things. I mean, it's so beautiful here. I enjoy the community, you know, people like you and other people that I've got the pleasure of introducing to it and then seeing them still here years later. Um, so I enjoy the community. Of course, it's so amazing. It's so exquisite, the tubs and um, the food. It's all it's also you know, wonderful to be here. Uh, and then a big part of the motivation has been it's one of the few places where I can bring my children. You're talking about, you know, Stevie Ray and Hazel, my children, where um, it's not a silent meditation retreat and they can be here and they can be safe and they can just and they have other young kids to play with and the gazebo school. And so I um, a lot of it's been the, the kids. And I think I'll continue to keep um, Esalen on my yearly, you know, at least workshop schedule, although I, th I think I've done the work study seven or eight years in a row and I don't think I'm going to do it next year I think I'm going to take some time away because now my children are at their age five and eight where I'd like to take them to Bali for the month or to Thailand or Costa Rica or some of these other places and get them out of the bubble <laughs> out of the Esalen bubble out of the United States bubble and let them see some of the rest of the world um, which I do some with them but um, I've been coming, bringing them here for a whole month, and I feel like, oh, we could do that month in Thailand. We could do that month in Bali. And so I think I'm going to start doing that a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. What's a mistake that you used to make as a teacher that you don't make now? Hmm. That might take a little reflection. Let's see. Um, you know, I think I'm more willing these days to say I don't know where I feel like early on in, in early teaching where there was sort of a pressure to have the answer and to maybe answer it even if I didn't have full knowing or direct experience with it, that uh, the longer I teach, the more I feel like it's okay to not know the answer to all of the questions. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. What is your secret superpower? What's something that you're really good at that people don't know about you? You know, I don't know that I'm really good at anything. I'm very proficient. Uh, sometimes it surprises people like how well I can skateboard or snowboard or mountain bike or like I went surfing a couple of years ago with some friends that were learning to surf and I can totally surf even though I never do it because I grew up surfing. Like I'm like really proficient at a lot of things, um, but I'm not like professional I'm not really great. Uh, I think that my, my biggest skill is teaching. Like that's the thing that comes most naturally to me and that I can, can do. Um, I play poker. You know I play poker and I've been very successful. I've won a whole bunch of money playing poker. Um, but it's not, you know, I'm still very much an amateur. You know, there's people that are really, really good at it that I couldn't even compare to. But I've been fortunate and lucky and I have a skill. I know how to do it. It is a little bit of a probably misuse of my mindfulness practice. <laughs> like, uh, I like playing poker. What's your poker game? Uh, Texas Hold'em, the kind of tournament Texas Hold'em usually. So, 
Um, and I th- actually, I've stopped playing. I thought I'd, when I got divorced, I thought I'd play more. I've got more free time. But actually, I'm like so focused on refuge recovery and this treatment center and teaching. And, you know, so I actually have kind of st- played much less than I thought I'd, because it is sort of my hobby. I, when I was in teacher training, Buddhist teacher training, Jack Cornfield, my teacher, said, get a hobby. He said, you're writing a book, you're teaching, you're working at San Quentin, you're, you know, what do you do for fun? And I was like, I don't know, listen to punk rock. He's like, get a hobby. And I was like, okay, like, maybe I'll like start building choppers or, you know, like trying to think of something fun to do. So then I came back to him about a year later and I said, Jack, I found a hobby, gambling. My new hobby is Texas Hold'em. I'm going to play poker. He's like, well, I don't know if that's what I was talking about. (laughs) What is a a self-care technique that you have for, because you're a teacher and you're in front of people a lot. I imagine there's some, and you can't say meditation. Do you have anything? I can't say meditation. Um... I mean, I off and on have a psycho, my own psychotherapist, you know, that I'll go to, like, you know, this year I'm seeing a new therapist for kind of post-divorce, father's death, you know, kind of that sort of self-care of like, even though I'm a therapist and a teacher, I know I have to have teachers and therapists in my life. Um, I get time with my teachers. Uh, I get time with Jack Cornfield. I just got back from Thailand where I was with my teacher, Ajahn Amaro, and going. So it wasn't really about meditation, but as much as like, just like being around my, being mentored and being accountable to these people that have known me for 30 years and have been my guides and have seen the transformation and know my, you know, slippery side or whatever and can call me on it. So that accountability with uh, teachers, therapists, um... And I try to get some kind of fun time. I feel like that's, you know, I have a tendency because of the ambition that I have and this kind of like, I'm going to create a positive change on this planet to not always do the self-care of like, and I need a vacation, (laughs) you know, and, you know, not only my own retreat time. And this is really tricky, um, kind of like, okay, I need two weeks of meditation retreat a year and I need two weeks of vacation a year. So I need to be able to find a month every year where I'm not working, which is challenging when you're scheduling yourself and trying to support a family and all of that stuff. Uh, but I'm pretty good at it, of getting both my own retreat time and my own vacation time. Do you have an intention for 2017? You know, I did an intention-setting ceremony uh, with my community in Los Angeles. And what came up for me was to experience a level of intimacy, of like relational and sexual and committed connection intimacy that I haven't experienced yet in my life. That goes beyond what I experienced in my marriage or any of my previous relationships. Because I have a sense that there's an untouched uh, kind of place in in intimacy that I've been looking for and seeking, but that I haven't yet had the right partner that was also interested in that level to um, connect it with. So that was my intention was hoping that that sort of relationship will manifest and uh, that I'll be able to walk through that door. That's a beautiful sentiment. Thank you for sharing that with us and Thank you, Noah Levine, so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks, Sam.
Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our featured song today is Machine Elves by Alan Singley. Want to listen to more episodes of Voices of Esalen? Not a problem. Just search for us on iTunes or go to esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Every episode is archived there. And while you're around, check out our program offerings and consider joining us in Big Sur. It's a good place. Until next time, be well. <laughs>